0: Introduction to the Talisman. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Lizzie Driver. The Talisman by Sir Walter Scott. Introduction to the Talisman. The Betrothed did not greatly please one or two friends, who thought that it did not well correspond to the general title of the Crusaders. They urged, therefore, that, without direct allusion to the manners of the Eastern tribes, and to the romantic conflicts of the period, the title of a tale of the Crusaders would resemble the playbill, which is said to have announced the tragedy of Hamlet, the character of the Prince of Denmark being left out. On the other hand, I felt the difficulty of giving a vivid picture of a part of the world with which I was almost totally unacquainted. "'unless by early recollections of the Arabian Nights' entertainments. "'And not only did I labour under the incapacity of ignorance, "'in which, as far as regards eastern manners, "'I was as thickly wrapped as an Egyptian in his fog. "'But my contemporaries were, many of them, "'as much enlightened upon the subject "'as if they had been inhabitants of the favoured land of Goshen. "'The love of travelling had pervaded all ranks.' AND CARRIED THE SUBJECTS OF BRITAIN INTO ALL QUARTERS OF THE WORLD. GREECE, SO ATTRACTED BY ITS REMAINS OF ARTS, BY ITS STRUGGLES FOR FREEDOM AGAINST A Mohammedan TYRANT, BY ITS VERY NAME, WHERE EVERY FOUNTAIN HAS ITS CLASSICAL LEGEND, PALESTINE, ENDEARED TO THE IMAGINATION BY YET MORE SACRED REMEMBRANCES, HAD BEEN OF LATE SURVEYED BY BRITISH EYES, AND DESCRIBED BY RECENT TRAVELERS had i therefore attempted the difficult task of substituting manners of my own invention instead of the genuine costume of the east almost every traveller i met who had extended his route beyond what was anciently called the grand tour had acquired a right by ocular inspection to chastise me for my presumption every member of the Travellers' club who could pretend to have thrown his shoe over edom was by having done so constituted my lawful critic and corrector it occurred, therefore, that where the author of Anastasius, as well as he of Hajj Baba, had described the manners and vices of the Eastern nations, not only with fidelity, but with the humour of Le Sage and the ludicrous power of fielding himself, one who was a perfect stranger to the subject must necessarily produce an unfavourable contrast. The poet laureate also, in the charming tale of Thelba, had shown how extensive might be the researches of a person of acquirements and talent, by dint of investigation alone, into the ancient doctrines, history, and manners of the eastern countries, in which we are probably to look for the cradle of mankind. Moore, in his Lala Rook, had successfully trod the same path, in which, too, Byron, joining ocular experience to extensive reading, had written some of his most attractive poems. In a word, the eastern themes had been already so successfully handled by those who were acknowledged to be masters of their craft, that I was diffident of making the attempt. These were powerful objections. Nor did they lose force when they became the subject of anxious reflection, although they did not finally prevail. The arguments on the other side were— that though I had no hope of rivalling the contemporaries whom I have mentioned, yet it occurred to me as possible to acquit myself of the task I was engaged, without entering into competition with them. The period relating more immediately to the Crusades, which I at last fixed upon, was that at which the warlike character of Richard I. Wild and generous, a pattern of chivalry, with all its extravagant virtues, and its no less absurd errors— was opposed to that of Saladin, in which the Christian and English monarch showed all the cruelty and violence of an eastern sultan, and Saladin, on the other hand, displayed the deep policy and prudence of a European sovereign, whilst each contended which should excel the other in the knightly qualities of bravery and generosity. This singular contrast afforded, as the author conceived, materials for a work of fiction possessing peculiar interest, one of the inferior characters introduced was the supposed relation of richard cordelion a violation of the truth of history which gave offence to mr mills the author of the history of chivalry and the crusades who was not it may be presumed aware that romantic fiction naturally includes the power of such invention which is indeed one of the requisites of the art prince david of scotland who was actually in the host and was the hearer of some very romantic adventures on his way home, was also pressed into my service, and constitutes one of my dramatist personae. It is true I had already brought upon the field him of the Lionheart, but it was in a more private capacity than he was here to be exhibited in the talisman. Then as a disguised knight, now in the avowed character of a conquering monarch, so that I doubted not a name so dear to Englishmen as that of King Richard I, might contribute to their amusement for more than once. I had access to all which antiquity believed, whether of reality or fable, on the subject of that magnificent warrior, who was the proudest boast of Europe and their chivalry, and with whose dreadful name the Saracens, according to a historian of their own country, were wont to rebuke their startled horses. "'Do you think,' said they, that King Richard is on the track, that you stray so wildly from it? The most curious register of the history of King Richard is an ancient romance, translated originally from the Norman, and at first certainly having a pretense to be termed a work of chivalry, but latterly becoming stuffed with the most astonishing and monstrous fables. There is perhaps no metrical romance upon record where, along with curious and genuine history, are mingled more absurd and exaggerated incidents. We have placed in the appendix to this introduction the passage of the romance in which Richard figures as an ogre or literal cannibal. A principal incident in the story is that from which the title is derived. Of all people who ever lived, the Persians were perhaps most remarkable for their unshaken credulity in amulets, spells, peripats, "'and similar charms, framed, it was said, "'under the influence of particular planets, "'and bestowing high medical powers, "'as well as the means of advancing men's fortunes in various manners. "'A story of this kind, relating to a crusader of eminence, "'is often told in the west of Scotland, "'and the relic alluded to is still in existence, "'and even yet held in veneration. "'Sir Simon Lockhart of Lee and Gartland,' "'made a considerable figure in the reigns of Robert the Bruce and of his son David. "'He was one of the chief of that band of Scottish chivalry, "'who accompanied James, the good Lord Douglas, "'on his expedition to the Holy Land with the heart of King Robert Bruce. "'Douglas, impatient to get at the Saracens, entered into war with those of Spain, and was killed there. "'Lockhart proceeded to the Holy Land with such Scottish knights "'as had escaped the fate of their leader.' AND ASSISTED FOR SOME TIME IN THE WARS AGAINST THE SARACENS. THE FOLLOWING ADVENTURE IS SAID BY TRADITION TO HAVE BEFALLEN HIM. HE MADE PRISONER IN BATTLE, AN emir OF considerable WEALTH AND CONSEQUENCE. THE AGED MOTHER OF THE CAPTIVE CAME TO THE CHRISTIAN CAMP, TO REDEEM HER SON FROM HIS STATE OF CAPTIVITY. LOCKHART IS SAID TO HAVE FIXED THE PRICE AT WHICH HIS PRISONER SHOULD RANSOM HIMSELF, AND THE LADY, PULLING OUT A LARGE EMBROIDERED PURSE, PROCEEDED TO TELL DOWN THE RANSOM. "'like a mother who pays little respect to gold, "'in comparison of her son's liberty. "'In this operation, a pebble inserted in a coin, "'some say of the lower empire, fell out of the purse, "'and the Saracen matron testified so much haste to recover it, "'as gave the Scottish knight a high idea of its value, "'when compared with gold or silver. "'I will not consent,' he said, to grant your sons liberty unless that amulet be added to his ransom. The lady not only consented to this, but explained to Sir Simon Lockhart the mode in which the talisman was to be used, and the uses to which it might be put. The water in which it was dipped operated as a styptic, as a fibrifuge, and possessed other properties as a medical talisman. Sir Simon Lockhart after much experience of the wonders which it wrought, brought it to his own country, and left it to his heirs, by whom, and by Clydesdale in general, it was, and is still, distinguished by the name of the Lee Penny, from the name of his native seat of Lee. The most remarkable part of its history, perhaps, was that it so especially escaped condemnation, when the Church of Scotland chose, to impeach many other cures which savoured of the miraculous, as occasioned by sorcery, and censored the appeal to them. Except in only that the amulet, called the Lee Penny, to which it pleads God to annex certain healing values, which the church did not presume to condemn. It still, as has been said, exists, and its powers are sometimes resorted to. Of late they have been chiefly resurrected to cure of persons bitten by mad dogs, and as the illness in such cases frequently arises from imagination, there can be no reason for doubting that water which has been poured on the lee penny furnishes a congenial cure. Such is the tradition concerning the talisman, which the author has taken the liberty to vary in applying it to his own purposes. Considerable liberties have also been taken with the truth of history, both with respect to Conrad of Montserrat's life, as well as his death. "'That Conrad, however, was reckoned the enemy of Richard, "'is agreed both in history and romance. "'The general opinion of the terms upon which they stood "'may be guessed from the proposal of the Saracens, "'that the Marquess of Montserrat "'should be invested with certain parts of Syria, "'which they were to yield to the Christians. "'Richard, according to the romance which bears his name, "'could no longer repress his fury. "'The Marquess, he said, was a traitor,' "'who had robbed the knight's hospitallers of sixty thousand pounds, "'the present of his father Henry, "'that he was a renegade, "'whose treachery had occasioned the loss of Acre. "'and he concluded by a solemn oath "'that he would cause him to be drawn to pieces by wild horses, "'if he should ever venture to pollute the Christian camp by his presence. "'Philip attempted to intercede in favour of the Marquess, "'and, throwing down his glove, offered to become a pledge for his fidelity to the Christians. But his offer was rejected, and he was obliged to give way to Richard's impetuosity, history of chivalry. Conrad de Montserrat makes a considerable figure in those wars, and was at length put to death by one of the followers of the sheik, or old man of the mountain. Nor did Richard remain free of the suspicions of having instigated his death. It may be said in general— "'that most of the incidents introduced in the following tale are fictitious, "'and that reality, where it exists, "'is only retained in the characters of the piece.'" Abbotsford, 1st July, 1832 Appendix to Introduction While warring in the Holy Land, Richard was seized with an ague. The best leeches of the camp were unable to effect the cure of the king's disease, but the prayers of the army were more successful he became convalescent and the first symptom of his recovery was a violent longing for pork but pork was not likely to be plentiful in a country whose inhabitants had an abhorrence for swine's flesh and though his men should be hanged they nay might in that country for gold nay silver nay no money no pork find take nay get that king richard might aught of eat an old knight with richard bidding when he heard of that tiding, that the king is once were such, to the steward he spake privilege. Our lord the king sore is sick, I wis, after pork he ill-longed is. Yea, may none find to sell, no man be hardy him so to tell. If he did, he might die. Now behoves to done as I shall say, thou he wert NOT of that. Take a Saracen young and fat. In haste let the thief be slain, Opened and his skin off flaying, And sodden, full hastily, With powder and with spicery, And with saffron of good colour, When the king feels thereof savour, Out of a if he be went. He shall have hitherto good talent, When he has had good taste, And eaten well a good repast, And supped of the brewis, A sup, slept after and sweat a drop, through Goddess help and my counsel, soon he shall be fresh and hale the sooth to say at words few slain and sodom was the heathen shrew before the king it was forth brought, QUOTE his men, Lord, we have pork sought, eats and sups of this brewes soot, thorough grace of God, it shall be your boot before King Richard, calf a knight. He ate faster than he carve might the king ate the flesh and knew the bones and drank well after for the nonce and when he had eaten enough, his folk hem turned away, and lo he lay still and drew in his arm, his chamberlain him wrapped warm, he lay and slept and sweat astound, and became whole and sound. King Richard clad him and arose and walked a bootin in the clothes. An attack of the Saracens was repelled by Richard in person, the consequence of which is told in the following lines. When King Richard had rested a while, a knight his arms gan unlace, him to comfort and solace, him was brought a sop in wine, the head of that like swine. That I of eight, the cook bade, for feeble I am, and faint and mad, of mine evil now I am fear, serve me therewith at my superee quod the cook that head i may have then said the king so god save me but i see the head of that swine forsooth thou shalt lessen thine the cook saw none other might be he fed the head and let him see he fell on knees and made a cry lo here the head my lord mercy the cook had certainly some reason to fear that his master would be struck with horror at the recollection of the dreadful banquet to which he owed his recovery. But his fears were soon dissipated. The swart fists, when the king seeth, his black beard and white teeth. How his lips grinned wide. What devil is this? the king cried. And gained to laugh as he were woed. What, is Saracen's flesh thus good? Thou never erst I naught wist. By God's death and his uprist, shall we never die for default, while we may in any assault. Slee Saracens the flesh may take, and them and roasten and do hem-bake, gnawing her flesh to the bones. Now I have proved it once, for hunger ere I be woe, I and my fork shall eat mow. The besieged now offer to surrender, upon conditions of safety to the inhabitants, while all the public treasure, military machines, and arms were delivered to the victors, together with the further ransom of one hundred thousand Byzants. After this capitulation, the following extraordinary scene took place. We shall give it in words of the humorous and amiable George Ellis, the collector and the editor of these romances. Though the garrison had faithfully performed the other articles of their contract, they were unable to restore the cross, which was not in their possession, and were therefore treated by the Christians with great cruelty. Daily reports of their sufferings were carried to the Saladin, and as many of them were persons of the highest distinction, that monarch, at the solicitation of their friends, dispatched an embassy to King Richard with magnificent presents, which he offered for the ransom of the captives. The ambassadors were persons the most respectable from their age, their rank and their eloquence they delivered their message in terms of the utmost humility, and, without arraigning the justice of the conqueror in his severe treatment of their countrymen, only solicited a period to that severity, laying at his feet the treasures with which they were entrusted, and pledging themselves and their master for the payment of any further sums, which he might demand as the price of mercy. King Richard spake with words mild, The gold to take, God me shield. Among you partes every charge, I brought in ships and in barge, more gold and silver with me, than has you, Lord, and Swilk three. To his treasure have I no need, but for my love I you bid to meet with me that ye dwell, and afterward I shall you tell. Thorough counsel I shall you answer, what bow ye shall to your lord bear. The invitation was gratefully accepted. Richard, in the meantime, gave secret orders to his marshal that he should repair the prison, select a certain number of the most distinguished captives, and, after carefully noting their names on a roll of parchment, cause their heads to be instantly struck off. That these heads should be delivered to the cook, with instructions to clear away the hair, and, after boiling them in a cauldron, to distribute them on several platters, one to each guest. Observing to fasten on the forehead of each, "'Piece of apartment expressing the name and family of the victim. "'An hot head bring me before me, as I were well a withal. "'Eat thereof fast I shall, as it were a tender chick, "'to see how the others were like.' "'This horrible ordeal was punctually executed. "'At noon the guests were summoned to wash by the music of the walls. "'The king took his seat by the principal officers of his court. "'At the high table—' "'and the rest of the company were marshaled at a long table below him. "'On the cloth were placed portions of salt at the usual distances, "'but neither bread, wine, nor water. "'The ambassadors, rather surprised at the submission, "'but still free from apprehension, "'awaited in silence the arrival of the dinner, "'which was announced by the sound of pipes, trumpets, and tabors, "'and beheld with horror and dismay "'the unnatural banquet introduced by the steward and his officers.' Yet their sentiments of disgust and abhorrence, and even their fears, were for a long time suspended by their curiosity. Their eyes were fixed on the king, who, without the slightest change of countenance, swallowed the morsels as fast as they could be supplied by the knight who carved them. Every man then poked other. They said, "'This is the devil's brother, that slays our men, and thus hems eats.' Their attention was then involuntarily fixed on the smirking heads before them. They traced in the swollen and distorted features the resemblance of a friend or near relation, and received from the fatal scroll which accompanied each dish the sad assurance that the resemblance was not imaginary. They sat in torpid silence, anticipating their own fate in that of their countrymen. While their ferocious entertainer, with fury in his eyes, but with courtesy on his lips— Insulted them by frequent invitations to merriment. At length this first course was removed, and its place supplied by venison, cranes, and other dainties, accompanied by the richest wines. The king then apologized to them for what had passed, which he attributed to his ignorance of their taste, and assured them of his religious respect for their characters as ambassadors, and of his readiness to grant them a safe conduct for their return. This boon was all that they now WISHED to claim, and King Richard spake to an old man. When's home to you, Sudan? His melancholy that yet abate, and says that ye came too late, too slowly was your time my guest. Ere ye came, the flesh was dressed, that men should serve with me. Thus at noon am I KNEE, Say him it shall be naught AVAIL, that he forbore us our tale, Bread, wine, fish, flesh, salmon, and conger, of us none shall die with hunger, while we may wend unto to fight, and slay the Saracens downright. Wash the flesh, and roast the head. With one Saracen it may well feed well, a nine or a ten of my good Christian men. King Richard shall warrant, there is no flesh so nourishant unto an English man. Partridge, plover, heron, nay swan, Cow, nay ox, sheep, nay swine, As the head of a Saracen. There he is fat, and thereto tender, And my men be lean and slender, While any Saracen quick be, live unto now in this syrie, For meat we will nothing care, About and fast we shall rare. And every day we shall eat, All as many as we may get, To England will be nowt gone, till they be eaten every one. Elsie's Specimens of Early English Matricial Romances The reader may be curious to know, owing to what circumstances so extraordinary an invention as that which imputed cannibalism to the King of England, should have found its way into his history. Mr. James, to whom we owe so much that is curious, seems to have traced the origin of this extraordinary rumour. With the army of the cross also was a multitude of men, the same author declares, who made it a profession to be without money. They walked barefoot, carried no arms, and even preceded the beasts of burden in their march, living upon roots and herbs, and presenting a spectacle both disgusting and pitiable. A Norman, who, according to all accounts, was of noble birth, but who, having lost his horse, continued to follow as a foot soldier took the strange resolution of putting himself at the head of this race of vagabonds, who willingly received him as their king. Amongst the Saracens, these men became well known under the name of Tharfurs, which Gibbert translates Trudentes, and were beheld with great horror from the general persuasion that they fed on the dead bodies of their enemies, a report which is occasionally justified, and which the king of the Tharfurs took care to encourage this respectable monarch was frequently in the habit of stopping his followers, one by one, in a narrow defile, and of causing them to be searched carefully, lest the possession of the least sum of money should render them unworthy of the name of his subjects. If even two souls were found upon any one, he was instantly expelled the society of his tribe, the king bidding him contemptuously buy arms and fight. This troop, so far from being cumbersome to the army, was infinitely serviceable, carrying burdens, bringing in forage, provisions, and tribute, working the machines in the sieges, and, above all, spreading consternation among the Turks, who feared death from the lances of the knights less than the further consummation they heard of under the teeth of the Thafurs. James's History of Chivalry It is easy to concede that an ignorant minstrel, finding the taste and ferocity of the Thafurs, commemorated in the historical accounts of the holy wars has ascribed their practices and propensities to the monarch of england whose ferocity was considered as an object of exaggeration as legitimate as his valour abbotsford first july eighteen thirty two end of the introduction